to be in our home for a second straight Sunday, and it is an honor that I get to the privilege to teach um, here on our second Sunday here. Um, it's kind of weird. I don't know if any of you guys have like moved, and there's always like that first day when you wake up in a new place, and it's a little groggy, but then you're also excited about like the fact that you're in a new place. I kind of feel like that's what this Sunday is, it seems like. Um, so we, we are excited to be in this building, but nothing has changed in regards to our community. Um, we are moving forward. Um, if you are new to our community, we are Emmaus Church. Uh, my name is Jay. Um, I am the pastor for discipleship and um, uh, house churches uh, here at our community. Um, and um, I just, again, just want to welcome you to here. Um, Emmaus, uh, here at Emmaus, we believe that in practicing the way of Jesus for for the renewal of all things here in our community and in our city and for to the ends of the earth. Um, This past uh, summer, we have been spending our time in the book of Romans. Um, And before we, we get started, I'm going to kind of recap a little bit of what we've talked about, and then we will move forward into chapter 12 of Romans. Uh, Spencer said last week uh, when he was giving context to the reality of Romans and who Romans was written to, um, that it was, it was written to, obviously, to a Roman community. Uh, and at that time, Rome is the capital. It is the center, the epicenter of the world in, um, in antiquity. And during this time, you can imagine that Paul is writing to this house church in this city where there's a lot of public work going on and there's a lot of cultural work that is happening. Uh, And he compared it last week to D.C., uh, as if if Washington, D.C., if if Paul was to write to a church, it probably would be, in our cultural context, a house church in D.C. And I found that ironic because actually my wife and I were in D.C. a couple of weeks ago. Um, And so as we were kind of uh, touring, doing the whole, you know, the D.C. shtick, seeing all of the sights and the sounds and whatnot, um, we got those really cool Lime scooters. I don't know if you guys have ridden on those yet. I promise you we weren't those annoying people that were just trying to run over everyone. Like, we were very careful. Um, Pro tip, though, if you need to go on the National Mall, get a Lime scooter. That's a lot of walking. Um, But we were riding around and, and just seeing D.C., just the way that D.C. is built, the classical architecture, um, the influence of the classics. There's a lot that can be compared to our culture now and the culture of, of Rome. Maybe not completely um, same to same, but there are very, very, very many similarities. And we went and got dinner with some friends, and we were walking through this neighborhood, and there was a um, restaurant we ate at. It was actually on, on top of a roof. It was very, neighborhood was very crammed together. And and I could only imagine this is probably a somewhat similar setting to what Paul was writing to and the people that he was writing to in the book of Romans. So let's recap a little bit about last week. As we have transversed through Romans, um, we were started in chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3. And Spencer talked about being transformed, where Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's 
uh, and he gave us the, um, what I call the formula for destiny, is the fact that thoughts lead to actions, actions lead to habits, habits lead to character, and character will ultimately shape your destiny. Uh, when I was working at the Boys and Girls Club, this is something that we would tell our kids all the time, that thoughts do matter. What you think does matter, and how you handle those thoughts will ultimately shape who you are. And so in Romans 12, verse 1 through 3, we see Paul exhorting his, uh, the people of Rome, the house church in Rome, to be understand that they are to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. Uh, the Greek word is metanoia. Is that, and it's one of repentance. And repentance means that we change our mind. We change our thinking about the world around us, about our behaviors and our actions. That it takes deep work of the mind in order to move forward in our discipleship to Christ. <clears throat> so the question that was posed is, what has our attention? What, is it that, what are the things in your life that has your attention? What are the things that you give your time, your money to? And how is that shaping your overall living? And so as we do the disciplinary work of our mind, of our thoughts, and how that moves into our actions, there are greater implications to that. In Romans, we've gone through the first part of Romans, what uh, Paul is normally most likely talking about, or is talking about, is the reality of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, how he has saved us, and that through these actions and through his life and ministry, there are indicatives that we follow, that there are implications to that in our own lives as we follow him. So transitioning in uh, to verses 9 through 21, we will see where Paul is exhorting the communities in Rome, the community in Rome, on how to better live their life. And so I would ask you to turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. And so we're going to actually go through each one of these this, this morning. And as we do, we will comment and better understand what Paul is saying. So again, our verses this morning are from Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, and I am reading from the New International Version. So Paul writes, and he says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. So, Paul has gone through Romans. He has talked about this is how, who Jesus is. This is how God has saved us. This is the grace that he gives us through Jesus Christ. And then he transitions into what I like to call a tweet storm. If any of you guys are on Twitter, 
it's a trash fire, I'll let you know. But for those of us who do engage on, on Twitter, uh, imagine Paul has his own account, and he's tweeting at the Romans, at the Roman church. And he goes snippet one by one, almost like a, a Twitter thread of the things that he is exhorting the church in Rome to do. So we're going to go through each one of these tweets as he's tweeting to us. In verse 9, he says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. The word translated, in, uh, word translated genuine in the Greek is inipokritos, which means without hip- hypocrisy or undisguised. He is telling us that our love should not be masked with our own motivations. It should not have um, sort of motive for ourselves behind it. It is to be genuine towards our community. And through all of these tweets, again, he is, he is stitching together how this community under Christ, under his grace, should operate together. He says that love is the priority. And we understand that it is the greatest command of Jesus to his disciples. If there's anything that our culture and our world loves about Jesus, it's his ideas of love. But what we have to understand is that love is rooted to something. And Paul is telling us this is what it's rooted to. Authentic love repels malice, and it magnetically clings to all things that is good. When we think about what it means to authentically love someone, it should stir in us emotions that cling to the goodness of God, that reflect on the goodness of God. He says, be devoted to one another in love. This is verse 10. Honor one another above yourselves. In this verse, in the Greek, he uses the stem for love, the stem word for love. If you know anything about Greek, uh, there are actually four different types of loves. And this love is the philo love, where we get Philadelphia, yes, the city of brotherly love, and philostorgos, which means to love dearly. We are called to love each other as a community with a familial affection, with love towards each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. When you think about uh, loving your brother and sister in Christ, meaning you will go to the ends for them, that they are almost in some ways your own blood, and so that we treat each other with such respect, that our love should go beyond the love that we see in the world. The ancient church father, Tertullian, he said, see how they love one another. That should be the greatest marker of mission that we have to the outside world, that they should look into our community and see how we love one another. Love is the guiding principle in all that we do, all that we say, all that Christ has lived and done for us. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all of these things point towards love. Honor is to be given, not received which is a profound sentiment given the Greco-Roman idea of honor. In this, uh, in this community, in this culture, I should rather say, in the Roman culture, similar to our own, there is a constant striving into an unsaid social hierarchy. There is a desire to move up the ladder and to receive honor for ourselves, that you would uh, take the first seat, that you would be the first up, and that honor would be earned on your own. But again, we are called, as Jesus says, to not take the first seat, to be willing to offer ourselves, offer opportunities to others before we offer them to ourselves. 
We live in a culture that is constantly talking about the fact that uh, respect is earned. And while there is very much some truth to that, the Christian ethic is always that honor and respect is ultimately given regardless of who they are or what situation or what history may be given there, which is a hard teaching for us. Many of us do not come from backgrounds where um, we have been taught that we should just simply give respect. We should give respect un, um, without condition and believe that we're not necessarily going to return on the other hand because we know that, that God sees that and he honors us in that. He says in verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Christians are to serve the Lord with a zeal. And in the Greek, it is the term zeo, which is fiery. There should be a fiery zeal, emotionally stirred up and boiled over for the work at hand. This is something that I think can be a danger and can be a good thing. Unfortunately, I think in a lot of evangelicalism that we see today, we see a lot of zeal. We see a lot of fiery zeal. But unfortunately, I believe that a lot of that fire zeal is misplaced into cultural narratives that are not necessarily Christ-centered narratives. He says, but keep your spiritual fervor. In some ways, be grounded in knowing what you are fiery about. Understand the narrative. Understand and understand the, the motives behind your zeal. That ultimately, it is to serve the Lord. In verse 12, he says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Virtues of hope, endurance, and prayerfulness describes a means of sustaining our faithfulness within our community. This is not easy in an American culture where everything is very instant. We uh, elevate the idea of happiness and pleasure. And what Paul is saying, you must endure endurance. As he says throughout the scriptures, he talks about running a race, running it with endurance. And in some ways, I think this points back to the last verse. I don't know how many of you have, uh, being in school, right, and you had to run the mile. I might be really old school. They used to do this thing called like the presidential merit, right? You got the certificate. And you know, that first day, or when it would come, you get ready, right? And like, out of the gates, I'm running as fast as I can. And about halfway through the first lap, I am done, right? And so, so what we need to do, what we need to understand is we have to in some ways pace ourselves. We have to be patient with what the Lord is doing. We have to position ourselves underneath the waterfall of his grace and trust in what he's doing as we run this race within our community, as we encounter trials or tribulations, and understanding that it is through discipline, through prayer, that we cultivate a sense of hope. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So ultimately, as we do all these things, we are to put love into practice by sharing what you have with those within the community. Love is cultivated in practice. It does not just show up. It takes practice. Much of this can be said even in marriages, in relationships. Sometimes you hear people and you hear, unfortunately, the, the breakup or the uh, disillusionment of a, uh, or dissolving, I'm sorry, dissolving of a marriage. I had a friend one time who said, well, I'm just not happy. I fell out of love. But the reality is that's not what true love is. True love requires work. We look at ourselves, right? And we can look at Jesus and we can ask, 
ask Jesus, am I easy to love? When I think about my actions, my habits, sometimes the things where I've, I've misstepped or done the wrong thing, I know I'm not easy to love. And so it takes work. As Jesus has loved us and loved us and thrown grace and encountered us, so we encounter each other with that love and we practice that love within our community. We need to understand that fellowshipping is not mere friendship, but an unhesitant desire to give to those in without thought of recompense. Fellowshipping is one of those weird Christianese words, I think. I don't know if any of y'all grew up in this, but as a guy, I used to hear stuff like, man, I just want to fellowship tonight. Like, we just got to get our brothers together and fellowship. And half the time I'm like, what do you mean by that? Fellowshipping, and this is what it really is. Fellowshipping is meaning that we're getting together, we're gathering without expectation from each other, that we're sharing with one another, and that we're, we're building each other up. In verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. This connects with Jesus' teaching on loving your enemy in Matthew 5, 44, and in Luke 6, 27 through 28. The Roman Christians were most likely subject to social ostracism, slander, a boycott of business, and legal action. And Paul calls the community to respond in love. As an American, this is one of the hardest teachings, I think, in Scripture. One of the hardest teachings for many people in our culture. The idea that if somebody does something wrong to me, that Jesus is saying, God is saying, you do not have a right to respond. The only thing you should respond in is love. Verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. This is a call to show sincere love with others. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Paul says this in, says this in, verse, uh, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26. We are to be a people that carries each other's burdens and so fulfills the law of Christ, as Paul says in Galatians. That when we are in moments of joy, we celebrate with one another. This is such a beautiful mark. But when we are in times of mourning, when we feel pain or someone feels pain, that we mourn alongside of them. This is a unique stance in taking regards to Greco-Roman culture where the apatheia, or apathy, is seen a virtue and was a deliberate lack of involvement with the care of others. Greco-Roman culture was very Darwinian. It was survival of the fittest. It was the weak die and the strong move on. But what was unique to the Christian community at that time, and again, going back to the quote from Tertullian, was that it cultivated a sense of love is not there in Greco-Roman culture. And in many ways, we are to honor that even in our present day and time. I have the honor of growing up in a tradition or being part of a tradition that was heavily involved in the social aspects of, of our community. God calls us to move beyond apathy. In many ways, this is a... An, epidemic in many ways in American culture, in Western culture. We have many Christians as well who are subject to this. And what I mean by apathy uh, is, is just not caring. Uh, 
my church, uh, uh, or our former church that we attended at, at one time, um, they uh, actually did a study of Greensboro. I think it was in 2014. And it was very interesting. Uh, they, they hired this expensive marketing group to come in because they just, they wanted to understand what is, what is Greensboro about? What's kind of like the vibe of Greensboro? And so these people came in, they did some surveys, they did some interviews. And one of the things, one of the negative things that they took away from Greensboro as they said, the Greensboro was one of the most apathetic cities they'd ever encountered. I believe that that is a charge to us as a church here in Greensboro. That is a local mission. There are many people who are just content with getting their job, uh, picking up dinner on the way home. You know, let's watch some Netflix, go to sleep, start over. That is happiness. That is purpose for much of our city. And so we as a church must move beyond that, to rise above that, and to reflect a deeper sense of calling and longing to build in our community and to build in our city a a desire of the love that God gives us. In verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Keeping with the call of a single-minded unity, Paul exhorts not uniformity, but harmony. We are to be a community that reflects the kingdom of God, that reflects the reality of Jesus who has come for all. Jesus came for the lame, the beggar. He came for the poor, the broken. But Jesus also came for the 1%. I feel like a lot in culture, we vilify the 1%, right? All these rich people, they don't want to help. They just love their money. But I do recall Jesus going to a tax collector and telling him, come out of the tree because I'm going to your house today to call him to repentance. We need to be a, a, a spectrum of experiences, statuses. The basis of honor in the house churches has no connection with human status. In Christ, the honor distinction of ethnicity, servitude, and gender are defunct. It's a quote from Peter Oakes, a New Testament scholar. 17 through 21. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. The Old Testament laws on retaliation were to be proportionate to the infliction. And Jesus teaches his followers that revenge is not the course of action in exemplifying the kingdom. We are not to perpetuate a cycle of violence or victimization. We are to end the cycle. In 18, he says, it is possible as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Paul calls on the Roman churches to avoid antagonistic relationships with others. We should not escalate. We should always be in the business of de-escalating, of looking beyond our own selves, to put ourselves in other people's shoes, to empathize, to reason, and to love others beyond ourselves. And in 19 and 20, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul is citing Proverbs 2, chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35. Meaning that it is God's to avenge. It is mine to avenge. I will repay. The renunciation of retaliation is not apathy towards the harm incurred, but a means of God holding, upholding his rule as the author of justice. 
Paul is aware of the role of rulers and authorities who bear the sword of justice, which we will talk about in chapter 13 in the following week. But by showing kindness to our adversaries, we are allowing them to change. We are teaching them a different ethnic uh, ethic. We are teaching them a different way of living, that retaliation is not the default posture that we are given. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Refusing to retaliate is how we worship with our bodies, and it is by refusing to adopt the revenge culture of our world that we show forth the renewal of our minds. This is the product of renewing our minds. So we've gone through Paul's tweet storm. We've gone through each one of these and what he is saying. So what are the greater implications of this? What are the questions that are being posed here? One of the things that can be posed is, Jay, we've been going through Romans, and Paul said a lot about, talk a lot about grace, right? He's talking about you can't earn it, you can't do it. Like Jesus is, he loves you and he saved you, and there's no way you can earn that. And so what we get into is we get into a debate between morality and moralism. And we must understand that there's a distinction between morality and moralism. Morality is something that is produced in us. Moralism is rather a posture of a means to an end. And for many of us in this room, we have been subject to moralism. Again, it is, it is important that we understand this distinction. And as we have read and seen, Paul is clear on the failed effort of the law to serve us, save us. And as he states in chapter 10, the law was a tyrant. It cannot save you. Doing X, Y, and Z will not save you. Yet through the grace of God and Jesus' atoning work, the law becomes a tutor. It becomes a teaching tool for us. And discipleship under Jesus produces a distinct morality rooted in the love Jesus teaches. Many of us have experienced this. Many of us have grown up in the church. Many of us have friends who are dealing with this, and they ask the question. And they are what many of us have called previously the de-churched, but many of them are going through a deconstruction phase. And they've fallen away from the faith. Maybe they've deconstructed with not building anything in the place of that. And they've experienced failed attempts of moralism. So again, many of us grew up in this. We grew up in this, do this, but don't do this. Go to youth group, don't go to that party. You know? Um, Be friends with that girl. But remember that if it ain't in the light, it ain't right, you know? That's camp reference, church camp reference, right? So we did all these things, right? I did the good thing. I made the right choices. I avoided the bad things, right? I wasn't hanging out with these people. But the problem with that is that it does not equate Jesus as king. And what it more or less is is moralistic deism. And we touched on this a little bit. In chapter 1. So what is moralistic deism? Well, the technical term for it is moralistic therapeutic deism. And it was proposed by sociologist Christian Smith in 2006, 2009, I believe it was. Um, And so him and his colleagues interviewed a bunch of teenagers about their experience in church or in faith. And so um, while this may seem about 16 years old, it's still, I think, describes a lot of many of us and what we grew up in. And so this is what moralistic therapeutic deism is. It believes that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, 
and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Good people go to heaven when they die. The problem with this is what do you do when it fails you? What do you do when you do all the right things and you follow all the rules and the reality of life hits you? Examples could be, I did all the right things, but my parents divorced. I had my heart broken by that guy or that girl. I didn't get the promotion that I wanted to get. My expectations that I had in getting and receiving this thing did not come to fruition. And while we may not actually say it deep down inside, many of us in the past, maybe today you are, struggling with, God, you owe me. I did what I was supposed to do. You owe me. The problem is, is that many of us were taught, this is how you put God into your debt. But the reality is when we read scripture, you can't put God into your debt because there's a lot of people in scripture where things go really, really bad for them. So I pose this question to you. Do we believe in a good and beautiful God when you do all the right things and things still go bad for you? In the midst of the struggles that you are dealing with this morning or today, can you answer the question, is God still good? This is why Paul states that we are to be more hope, endurance, and faith. We are called to endure so that it may produce an aroma of hopefulness foreign to our world. A moral culture of agape love is the result of this love. What Christ has done in us as we renew our minds and as we discipline ourselves and practice ultimately produces immorality. It is not a means to an end. It is a product of the goodness of God. What Christ produces is a new community of selfless endeavoring that reflects the love of Christ. We love God by loving others and thereby participate in God's work as he sets up a unique community in a culture that may not be known for its loving ambiance. There are many people in our community, and when I mean community, I mean Greensboro, in your neighborhood, who may not be feeling a sense of love a sense of honor, a sense of purpose, a sense of of being wanted and loved. And so as a community, we should be an attractive aroma, a fragrance that draws them in, that allows them to reflect a sense of Jesus healing their heart, building them up, and sending them out to do the same work that we continue to do today. Surely as a community, we are not currently or would ever debate of imposing social hierarchies within our community. I don't believe there's anyone on staff, anyone here, where we would say, these are the type of people we want in our church. However, unconsciously, it is a real danger we are susceptible to. Yet it is important that as a body, we cultivate and celebrate the beauty of God's work in all people, regardless of age, race, gender, or economic status. 
We are to be Jesus offering ourselves as he did to all, as he did with the outcasts, with the religious, and even the rich. We are to be all things to all people. It is easy, again, I say this, it is easy for us to susceptibly be drawn into those people we are most attracted to. And we have to push, push back against that. And we have to put it into practice, okay? I know it's, for some of y'all that know me, I can't believe I'm saying this as well too, because I'm the most introverted person in the entire universe. It is hard for me to talk with people sometimes. It's exhausting. That's just who I am. And that's something I'm having to work through. But the reality is God has called us to practice these things. It's hard. It's difficult. But it's what Jesus calls us to. And in the end, we, we find that he gives us a sense of joy and honor. And you know what? Maybe we learn something about ourselves and the other person that we weren't expecting. I want to transition now to this idea of repaying evil with love. And again, I say this, it's, it's very difficult in American culture. I worked with teenagers uh, for seven years. I was one, too many years too long because teenagers are a joy from the Lord. Um, but I worked in an after-school program and occasionally, you know, I had to deal with some fights. It wasn't fun. But the constant thing that was told to me or the excuse was, well, they hit me first, so I hit him back, you know? Or it was self-defense. Okay, I had to pull you off the top of him. I don't think that was self-defense. Um, and unfortunately, many of their parents told them, if you get hit, hit him back. I'm, I'm not a parent. I've worked with kids a lot. That's not the ethic of Jesus. And there's a lot of nuance in that, and we need to have a conversation about that. But we are called to end the cycle. We are called to rise above it. In many ways, we are called to take the high road. And again, this pushes against not only what I believe is American culture, but the similarities of what was going on in Roman culture. Aristotle says this, that vengeance is a virtue. He says, to take vengeance on one's enemies is nobler than to come to terms with them. For, or to relate is for to relate is just. And that which is just is noble. And further, a courageous, courageous man out, out not to allow himself to be beaten. Excuse me. Aristotle is saying, take justice into your own hands. This is a virtue. But this is not the teaching of Jesus. Revenge comes from a very Western perspective of justice. Justice is often more about appeasing our grief and turmoil by extending our pain with equal or greater pain to those that have victimized us. We believe in rights that arise from our pain. The philosophy in American culture and Western culture is when pain has been inflicted, you have a right to respond. But Jesus tells us, Paul tells us, it is in love in which we respond. That is the antidote to our anger, our frustration. It's not that those things are bad. It's a question of how do we deal with them? How do we approach them? Again, I, I, I recently um, uh, have come to know about or was learning about a different form of justice uh, that's ancient in many ways and um, actually comes from Africa and something that was actually used during the, um, at the end of apartheid in South Africa. So there is actually an African uh, philosophy called Ubuntu, and some of you may be aware of this. 
And I wanted to share what Ubuntu is because I think that it actually reflects an, an attribute of Christianity and what Jesus is saying. So uh, Ubuntu, just a, a quick definition, a Nguni Bantu term, which means humanity. It is sometimes translated as I am because we are. Also, I am because you are, or humanity towards others. In exosa, the latter term is used, but is often meant in a more philosophical sense to mean the belief in a universal bond of sharing that connects all humanity. Um, at the end of apartheid, Nelson Mandela um, commissioned the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and this was chaired by Reverend Desmond Tutu. The commission conscientiously chose various victims and witnesses of human rights violations during apartheid in South Africa, and it served as a means for South Africans to bear witness and potentially seek restorative means of justice with fellow citizens in the state, as opposed to ret retributive justice, where justice is only satisfied via the suffering of the perpetrators, the TRC reflects the indigenous idea of Ubuntu, qualities of compassion and harmony. The TRC aimed to cultivate avenues solely to gather testimonies as a means of conviction, but rather that of honest confession from perpetrators would facilitate healing for victims and for the whole of South Africa. Desmond Tutu said this, he said, in forgiving and being reconciled are not about pretending that things are, are other than they are. It is not patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the pain, the degradation, the truth. True forgiveness deals with the past, all of the past, to make the future possible. Again, this kind of jars our idea of justice. But the reality of the justice that we see from Jesus and the justice that God will give us is one of restorative. It is not retributive. He restores us because he understands the great links of what connects us as humans. And in this, we need to understand that Jesus is actually the great victim that we must all face. God's love is showing and facing our victims and presenting ourselves to our victimizers. I had a professor one time tell me, he said, Jesus had to present himself to his disciples because the disciples had to face their victim. And in many ways, we have to face our victim. That at the end of the time, in eternity, which seems so far away, but the reality is that is the great victim we have to face. The great pain, the great dishonor, he is the one that bears it. And so in the resurrection, I see this as a sense of restorative justice for ourselves. And then in ourselves, we see the humanity in those who have perpetrated violence against us or wrong against us. Again, it's not that we say that what they did was right. It's not that we are apathetic towards it but that Jesus gives us a new heart. The Holy Spirit gives us a new heart to view this person in a different light other than simply what they have done against us. So God, Jesus, Paul, they all call us to loving repentance beyond our anger and our frustration, but to really seek help. And I think, again, that's what is so important about our community is that when somebody's done something wrong to us, that we come together as a community 
that we face each other or we simply help that person who has felt the pain of someone or a situation, that we mourn together and that we love each other as Christ has called us to love each other. I want to close out now and I'll ask uh, Anderson to come up. But for many of us in this room, um, you're dealing with pain. And, and, I, and I realize there's probably some of you who are dealing with a lot of anger uh, about maybe a particular situation. And, and maybe you're thinking, Jay, like, you don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand the anger and the bitterness that I'm holding on to. And while I have myself dealt with some anger and bitterness as, as well in my own heart, I can tell you with confidence that if you give it to Jesus, if you give it to us as a community, that we are, we're here to stand with you, to love you well. Some of you in this room don't even know what I'm talking about in regards of who Jesus is, what his love is. And so what I would call you to do is to, this morning is to ask someone. If you came here with someone, ask them. Come to me, ask me, ask one of the pastors here. To ultimately know that there is a community here that has opened the door and extended a hand and invitation to be a part of something bigger. Bigger than maybe what you've experienced in our culture today. Bigger than what you might understand in the narratives or the experiences that you've had. That ultimately there is a God who loves us, loves you. That he's making all things new. And that ultimately his promises last for eternity. In many ways, there is a, uh, not in many ways, but the reality is there is a, a scripture in Revelation where it talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's beautiful. It talks about him setting a table for us, right? And us coming together. That there will be a day when we sit down at this table with Jesus and we will toast to his faithfulness. And all that we've experienced in this life will be a celebration of his goodness. You're invited to that. Let us pray. Jesus, um, I just pray this morning, God, that you would continue to stitch together a new community. Father, that in your atoning work and in your sacrifice and through your love, Father, we would know that Christ is the great victim that we must face and that through his forgiveness, through his grace, we have been invited into something bigger than ourselves. Father, that you love us. Father, that you know the depth of our pain that we may be feeling. Father, you know the joy that we feel when those moments arise. But Father, this morning, I pray that your spirit would just simply penetrate maybe hardened hearts. Father, where soil needs to be tilled, God, that it it would happen. But ultimately, Lord, that we would look to you in all of our needs. Father, that we would be formed into this new community that you called us. God, that we would be a city on a hill. Father, we'd be salt and light to those around us. Ultimately, Lord, Lord, ultimately, Lord that we would be a reflection of you in all that we say, all that we do. Father, I pray all these things in your son's precious.